We're going to continue on with our series through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And uh, so if you are, are new with us, we're glad you're here. Um, what our church does is we just walk through chunks of Scripture. And uh, we're going to walk through a pretty good-sized chunk today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22. But let me just kind of catch you up and, um, and, and get to the point where we're at. So the book of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, it's, it's the history books of from when Israel entered into a monarchy to when Israel basically dissolved into ruin. And so we are still at the kind of entry into monarchy phase. Israel has its first king, Saul, who is a crazy evil person. Um, we're going to see that very, very clearly today. And so the people demand a king. It's not that God didn't want to give them a king, but they wanted a king like all the other nations who would do all the work for them. They wanted to trust in a king instead of trusting in God. And we see this played out over and over that that was a foolhardy move. And so as soon as Saul is, is inaugurated, he almost immediately betrays God and is rejected as the long-term king and monarch succession of Israel. And so God sends Samuel, the priest, to anoint David, who's called a man after God's own heart. But we even talked last week, um, there are several times in David's life where he commits just blatant, um, vagrant sins. But David's a good repenter. And even the Psalms that we read today, whether it's sections of, of Psalms 23, in our um, Old Testament reading, this is the psalm that David wrote after what text we have today. This is, this is what he was processing and going through. So we see David is a man after God's own heart. He's been anointed king, but he's anointed as a boy, as a child. And so he doesn't immediately take the throne. And there's this whole problem of what to do with the current king, Saul. So through amazing circumstances, God just working and, and, and piecing things together in providence, he puts David in Saul's courtyard because he's such a great musician. And, and then David defeats Goliath, the Philistine, because everyone, especially Saul, is too chicken to go out and fight him and doesn't trust God enough to take care of them, to do what God has said he would do. And so then David becomes the hero. Everyone wants David to be king now, except, of course, Saul. And so Saul begins this plottings to kill David, and his jealousy and his bitterness quite literally drive him mad. He, he gets to the point of craziness, and he just randomly will grab spears and throw them across the room at David. And then moments later, tell David how wonderful he is. We have a couple of those moments in this passage. And so David has run. He's got out of Dodge, and he is on the run, moving around. And last week, this becomes very, very important he is hungry, and he doesn't even have a weapon. He, he ran out of the palace and hid out in the, for, in the fields and then just took off. So he goes to where the tabernacle is. He goes and he lies blatantly to the priest, says he's on a secret mission from Saul. Do you have any bread and do you have any weapons? And they hand him the sword of Goliath, this monstrous sword that was so heavy it said David struggled with two hands to lift it when he cut off Goliath's head, but now he grabs it and said, there's no sword like this. And so now he's wielding the very sword he could barely lift in his first battle. And he goes out, but there was a spy. There, there was a servant of Saul in the tabernacle at that time. His name's Doeg. And Doeg is about as bad as it gets. He, he is an evil, evil man. 
So we're going to see how all this transpires. But since that time, David's gone out, he's hid his family, and he is hiding out in the middle of nowhere. When, when we stereotypically think of deserts, that's where David is. All right, except instead of sand, it's dust. It's some of the nastiest stuff. I, I've been to some of these areas, and, and this dust gets on you and won't come off. Sand, at least when it gets dry, you know, you can brush it off. This stuff doesn't. It stains your clothing. It stains your body. You could tell David had been where he was been, where he had been. He would have been stained red by this nasty dust. And he's hiding out and living there. So we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. And it's kind of, as I was thinking through this, I, you know, there's been several tennis stars on the news, and I, I'm, I'm not a sports fan, y'all know this, but that, that is a sport that just, if I could get into anything, it'd probably be that. I mean, that's amazing how just athletic these people are. And uh, there was a bunch of, you know, Serena Williams has been in the news. I watched just the, the clip that came up on the news. I, just, I don't even fathom how these people can hit the ball and figure out where it's going to go. But, but the stands is what kind of caught my eye. And, you know, it's, the, it's this move, right? That's the text. That is how I felt all week. I'm like, okay, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul, David. Okay, okay. that's what we're going to do. So just kind of get ready. Um, we did it last week. We're going to do that this week. We're actually going to do that next, uh, yes, next week and then a week uh, in a little further down. It just, it's kind of a compare contrast is how, the, how God set this book up. But we're going to go back and forth from Saul to David. So just be ready for that. Um, and and uh, hopefully I can be clear. So how we're going to set this up today is, is we're going to just walk through the text. Um, we want to know our history. This is our history. This is the people of God. And so we want to know who we are and how we got to where we are. So we're going to walk through that and, and we want to learn just kind of the academic side of things, the, the, the knowledge side. But then I want to pull out some little things that are in this text that, that may not be the main point. The main point is trust God. Okay, rocket science, I know. That's really what this text is about. But we're going to pull out some little things that are in here that are really, uh, they've helped my life this week, and I hope they'll help yours. And, and then we're going to kind of pull back and see, there, there's kind of a theme that goes um, in this text, and it's the theme of the sanctity of life, the value of human life, and, and the comparison between Saul, the ungodly madman, and how he treats life, and David, the man after God's own heart, and how he treats other people. And then finally, we're going to come back and hit that main theme, the, the, the glaring point of David's trust in God's plan. So he was not afraid. So let's walk through the text. Uh, open your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, it will help you because we're going to go through a chunk of, of Scripture here. If you grab one of those black Bibles that's there in the uh, chairs in front of you, this is on page 245, big number 22, little number 6. Um, and uh, we will walk through, we're going to go all the way through the rest of chapter 22. I'm going to tell you what happened in 23, and then we're going to pick back up again in chapter 24. So again, 1 Samuel 22, 6, and we're going to, to read through this here. It says, Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamisk, tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him 
Um, this, this was kind of how Saul held court. We come back to this tamarisk tree a lot of times. This is, it's not any kind of magic tree or anything like that. It's like a cross between a crepe myrtle and a hemlock. If you're a hiker out in the Smokies, um, think of a hemlock with flowers. But it's just this big old monster tree. And that's kind of Saul's like military war camp. When, when he's out fighting, that's where he's hanging out. All right, verse 7. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin... Will the son of Jesse, this is David, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of husband, hundreds that you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. To lie in wait as this day. Do you get the psychosis this guy's got? Me, 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 me. How many times did I read me? I mean, it is all about Saul. And he's angry. He's saying, hey, hey, who, who made you general? Did David? No, it's, 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 get your loyalties right. That's kind of what's going on here. Verse 9. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. This is the guy from the last chapter. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Verse 12, and Saul said, Hear now, Ahitub, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and all that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king. Remember, he's been lied to. David lied. None of this is out. Uh, Ahimelech's getting the news for the first time. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captured over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time of I have acquired of God for him? No. Let the king not impute anything to his servant or all my house of my father or your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. This abuse and perversion of justice. Saul's wrath, Saul's revenge is so strong, he can't even hear good sense. He can't even, this guy didn't even know. He got duped too. And Saul sentences him to death. But not just him. All his family. Listen to how, how obvious this injustice is. Verse 17. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. 
But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Uh, do you get how obvious this is? He, he's saying to his army, his executioners, kill them. And they're, we ain't killing him. This is the priest. You want me to kill him for talking to God. And he is a priest, right? Like, that's kind of the job. And he gave him stale bread and a sword that he won. We're not doing it. It's so obvious that they refuse to obey the orders of the king. And think about the implications of this. Dude's crazy. He just ordered the execution of hundreds of people. And they're willing to stake their life on the fact that this is wrong. Think about the integrity these people had. Even in the midst of an evil king, they kept their integrity. Verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, good old Doeg again, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. That's, that's the priest garments. He killed 85 priests. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So he killed 85 priests and then every member of their family, hundreds of people, children. And Saul is loving every second of it. You see the bitterness and evil that's in this man's heart? Uh, just, just again, lots of little asides here. Do you see what bitterness and jealousy can do to you? This man killed kids in order to hold on to power. Verse 20. It, it, it lightens up a little bit here. Stay with me. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech the son of Ahitab, named Abathar. We're going to hear that name a lot. Just a weird name, I know. Put that one in your memory because he keeps coming up. He becomes very important in the book of First and Second Samuel. Named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on the day when Doeg the Enamite was there, and he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. Two things here. One, don't miss the shadow here. Do you, do you get what happened? There's death all along. There's death and destruction going on. And one guy flees to David the king and gets saved. Don't miss that because years later, seven, eight hundred years later, there's going to be lots and lots of other people who get to flee to the son of David, the descendant of David, and all get saved. This is the family of Jesus. This is the area where Jesus comes from. This is the line that Jesus inherits. We flee to the son of David and we can see salvation. But don't just miss that. Abathar becomes important. 
not only was he saved when he fled to David, he becomes useful in the kingdom. You're not just saved to sit on the green chairs and enjoy. I mean, we sing, and I love it. Man, y'all, worship team, that was awesome. That was just thank you. And I love it every week. But men, ladies, that's not it. God saves us and gives us a mission. He, he changes us and gives us the duty of being ambassadors. Agents of reconciliation for a world who is lost and without hope. So don't miss this. Jesus died for your sins and He is the place to go for salvation and you need to go there. So as we get to talking about trusting in the Lord as this passage continues on, don't miss what I mean by that. I don't just mean kind of a vague hope, you know, the, the little Santa Claus believe, you know, and smile and have. No, this is trust in a real living God who came to this earth, who lived a perfect life, who died for our sins, rose up again, ascended to reign from heaven and will come back someday. This is a very concrete, real faith. This is a very concrete, real trust in a real God with specific things and, and things He demands of us. And one of them is believe on the name of the Son of God. But don't miss this. That's not where the story ends. You have a job to do, Christian. It's to share the good news of Christ. It's to disciple others. It's when you see that person sitting alone. It's to go ask the question, can I join you? Because you never know what that person's going through. You are now an agent of reconciliation. So Abathar continues on. Um, as we get to chapter 23, this, this is the back and forth. And here's, here's kind of what happens. David goes to fight the Philistines. All right, there's this, this town. It's not a very big place. It's called Kiliah. All right, weird name, Kiliah, um, as you see that in your Bible. And I would encourage you to go read through this part of the week. The Philistines, the enemy of the Israelites, are attacking Kiliah. It's Saul's job to go take care of that. Saul doesn't do it because Saul's so worried about David and doesn't like that whole work thing. All right, so David hears about this. He thinks, I should go take care of this. All his people say, whoa, 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 Saul, he likes to kill you. If we come out of hiding, make a big show of ourselves, he's going to know where we're at. Suddenly, we're not the attackers, we're the attackees. And we're going to lose that battle. So David does something just brilliant. He asks God what they should do. Abathar comes up and prays. And David prays. And God says, go attack the city. David goes, tells his generals, there's about 600 folks here we're talking about. And whoa, are you sure? We're really questioning this. David prays again. God says, go, I got this. You're going to be taken care of. So David says, we're going. And the people follow him. The people followed their leader because their leader was following Christ. It's a good lesson for pastors and elders. Follow your pastors and elders as they follow Christ. And if they're not following Christ, kick them out and get new pastors elders. All right? But David goes. They win the battle. Everybody in Kilia is so happy. They love them. Everybody's good. And then, of course, Saul hears about it. So Saul says, I've got them trapped. 
because Kilia has gates and a wall around it. I get them in there. All I do is go all the way around. I've got David. So David prays again. He doesn't know what to do. He prays. And he says, God, is Saul coming? God says, yes, Saul's coming. David says, are the people of Kilia going to give me up to Saul? And God says, yep. All right. <laughs> they are turncoats. They are traitors of the deepest order. And so David and his men get out of Dodge once again. They go out to the desert again. They go out to a place called En Gedi. This is a famous place where a lot of psalms were written. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, I got to go there, and it is truly like cartoon when they show the cartoons and there's the sand desert and then the oasis and it's like waterfalls and that's in getty like that's not real for the most that is real that is in getty this is where david goes it's gorgeous spectacular place you can look out see the dead sea you can look out and see one of the fortresses where um the israelites had for thousands of years it was the last place they held out against the romans and david just flees there and he hides Saul comes up to Kilia, gets mad because David's gone, doesn't even worry about the Philistines, and uh, eventually he actually gets close where it says there's one mountain, so there's a big mountain. Here's Saul, here's David. They're about to get him. And suddenly the Philistines attack Saul, and he has to run off and fight. And it's then called the mountain of escape, where David gets away again because of the amazing hand and work of the providence of God. Then we get to chapter 24. So look there, chapter 24, big number 24. And we're going to continue this story. So we have, Saul's just defeated that little battle with the Philistines. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David with his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, friendship is really important. By the way, David's not out here in the worst time of his life by himself. Somehow in my brain, that's how, it, you know, I read the Psalms and, and David's obviously just torn up in his soul. And probably because of my own failures, my own poor wisdom and how to handle emotions and all those sorts of things. When I'm low, when I'm down, I, I sit and, you know, go off to myself. That's not what David's doing. David's got 600 of his closest buds with him. He's got Abathar, the priest now. He has his people. There's an inner circle of five or six people that we'll find out about later who walk through with him this whole time. He's not alone. But this is a place for those dear friends giving bad, bad advice. Saul walks in, ready to go to the restroom, and they said, this is it. <laughs> Apparently Saul likes to go to the bathroom by himself, you know, as I'm, I'm assuming most men would. He sneaks in the cave, and there sits an entire army of 600 guys. There may be 3,000 people outside the cave, but there's only one on that side inside the cave. This is it! This is God! And David goes, and he cuts off a little corner of the robe. And listen to what he says in verse 5. See the contrast between Saul and Doeg 
and David's heart. Verse 5, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's room. Saul, having a great day that he killed hundreds of people and a bunch of kids. David is convicted to the core because he thought about murder. Think of the difference in the hearts. Verse 6, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, in other words, the king, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Who's he worried about here the whole time? Do you notice the difference in the speech? David said, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Saul, me, me, me. Do you see the difference here? Do you see where David's heart's at? And do you see the outworkings of it? Verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. So he argues for it and then he stands in the way. Ain't going to happen on my watch, boys. Saul rose up, left the cave, and went his way. Think of the character. It's not only not murder, but to feel convicted just for thinking about it. David could have said the word. He didn't even have to do it himself. Just that fast. It would have been over. But think even more. David's trust in the good providing God. He trusted God even in this mess of him. His house is a cave. And apparently he's got to share it with 600 guys and Saul. And he still trusts God's plan. When everything didn't make sense, he just trusted God and keeps on going. Verse number 8. Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. So he's hollered. He lets him get away. My Lord and King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. Think of the humility here. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I have spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. By the way, this is his father-in-law, just for the record. Think about that. He's going after his son-in-law. See my father. See the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your rope and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I am not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge against you, but my hand shall not be against you. You remember how the New Testament says this? God steps in and talks. He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. How often do we miss that? Do we decide we're going to take a pound of flesh out of them for what they did to me? How often are we 
the vengeful. Rather than trusting God, he's got this. Now, don't miss the big picture of Scripture. God does judge. Saul will pay for his actions in this life and the next. Last week we read the Scripture, one of my favorite psalms. It it was the psalm that got me through some of my darkest days. It says, He holds your tears in His bottle. This is a practice in the Near East uh, of literally a bottle. And they would cry into it just, just as a symbol. So they'd look at that bottle and remember the dark times and remember God's faithfulness to bring them through. And God says, I've got a bottle and it's got your tears in it. And David says, I'm going to trust that. He's better at vengeance than me. He's more just at vengeance than me. And by the way, this even applies to Facebook. Or Instagram or whatever it is this week. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancients say, this is David's speech, out of the wicked ones comes wickedness. Did you hear what he just called Saul? He didn't mince words. (laughs) Oh yeah, by the way, wicked, yeah, that's coming out of you because you're wicked. But my hand, we can't control the others, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea, in other words, seriously, you come out with 3,000 guys, I've got 600, and we got a sword. Verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you to see it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. (laughs) That one's an easy call. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Verse 20. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me. In other words, you won't kill all my kids when you become king. That you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. He, by the way, keeps that promise. We'll hit that one here near Christmas. Then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Everything seems good. And you know what Saul does the next week? Same song, new verse. This lasts a while. God preserved David. Think about this. Saul's got 3,000 guys. David's got 601 swords. God did a mighty work here to change this madman's heart. It's because David trusted God's plan more than he trusted him working things out. So I want to bring two thoughts to to kind of wrap this up, help us kind of apply this a little bit. The first one, if you know and love God, if God has saved you, if Jesus Christ has changed you, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, he has changed you. 
if that has happened, if that has happened, you will value human life. If you know God, you will value human life. Look at the contrast between the man of God and the man of me, of Saul. See the difference. See what he valued. He he killed just to make himself feel better about revenge. And David won't even bring his hand to murder his worst enemy. Do you see the beauty and the difference here? And as Christians, as believers, this is not what saves us, but this is what we do out of our salvation. This is, this is what God works in us. We call it the sanctity of life, that life is precious because God himself places value on it. God created humans and said they are created in the image of God. And so we value that. That means as Christians, we fight against abortion. It needs to end in our land. We don't do that violently. We don't do that, again, hear what, how David did things. But we are persuasive and vocal, just like David did, and fight for the cause of life. But not just there. Abort- adoption. This is the key, key, key to stopping abortion. Making a home for babies. Making a home for children. Foster care. Taking in kids who have no other place. By the way, I am so grateful um, for those of you. There's, there's, I don't know if any of y'all are here today, but the kids who are in foster care who are now part of our church, members of our church, I'm so grateful for you. I am so glad you're here. We, we love you so, so much. Um, I'm so grateful for what God's done in your hearts. People who have special needs and disabilities. You know, I, uh, I didn't get this until Pastor... I'm kind of glad he's gone for this part. It's not like it's, it's weird and he's sitting there, but... I had no idea how unintentionally rude and uncaring. It's not that I meant to be. It just, just unintentionally rude and uncaring I was to people who had a special need, people who had a disability before I met Joe. And we had the blessing of little Eden come into our church. When I see my son, and he looks at Eden as his peer, his buddy. I think back to my childhood. Now, I didn't do that. Not intentionally, not, not knowledgeably, but I didn't reach out to someone who might have been a little bit different than me. I praise God for what those two little six-year-olds have taught me. One of the things that we said when we build this building is it has to be accessible. It's not perfect. <laughs> we need some automatic door openers, things like that, but we built as much as we could afford. 
folks, this, this has to be on our heart. Because everyone, every human being, is made in the image of God. I, I don't care what their ability level is. They bear God's image and they are precious. And they are important to our church. I praise God for the adults who have some special needs who are in our church because they serve faithfully week in, week out. They're usually the best huggers here and they are usually got the biggest smile. And there's a lot of days. There's a lot of days. I don't get a smile or a hug. No one stops for me because I'm the pastor. You know, you don't have to for that. And I get that. But you know who always stops to give me a hug and a smile? Our two adults who serve in the kids' area who have special needs. <laughs> they never miss it. Folks, I have failed so often to see this. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. People of other ethnicities, we are rampant. We are rampant with racism in our country. We need to be the people speaking against this. We need to be the people, including others who might not look like us, and we need to train our kids to do the same. The poor in our country. There's a lot of abuse of government programs. But you know what? The solution of that is not forget the poor. Let them figure it out. We need to be careful. We need to be very, very careful in how we go about and how we talk about economics and politics. That we are not forgetting people God love. And let's be very careful to point out most Christians in the world are very, very poor. Most by far. We need to love the poor. We need to love the abused. We need to fight against abuse. We need to love the lonely. We need to love the hurting. This is what it means to value life. We care. And not because it saves us. This isn't the gospel. This isn't, it is how it works itself out in our lives. It's how it changes us. It's the people God makes us become because He has saved us. So let's not miss what God did in this chapter here. Do you see the difference between David and Saul? Don't miss this. Finally, second point. Not only if you know God will you value life, but God is worthy of your trust. And you should trust him completely in your darkest day. Again, this is the overriding obvious point here. But do you see what David said? You see how he reasoned? I don't have to kill Saul because God's got this handled. Do you see the contrast even from how David grew? When he went in to the tabernacle, he lied. Later, he puts on this farce of being crazy and shames the name of Israel. But he didn't keep doing that. He got it. That if I trust in God, he can handle this. And I know we say trust in God all the time. Like, yes, we get that. But what I'm talking about, 
is today when you go home and you lay your head on your pillow tonight, are you trying to handle your problems or are you actually trusting God to do it? Are you trying to make it happen? And I'm not saying there's not effort to be put forth. But are you taking the sword into your hand and killing Saul? Or are you holding the folks back? Because you know God's got this under control. You know he can handle it. Where's your brain go on your pillow? When you wake up, can you face the day because he lives? Y'all remember the song? I love that song. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. I can face uncertain days because he lives. See, we serve a live, risen Savior. He can handle it. He can handle it. Trust him. Stop worrying. Stop your anxiety. Stop your sinning to make it happen, whatever it might be. Stop. Trust God. Trust him. In the real day-to-day life, trust him. Our musicians are going to come back up. We're going to sing one more song in responding to God. But, but first, I want us to respond to God in prayer. So pray with me now. And let me ask you to pray this week diligently for things like abortion to go away in our country. Pray with me for that. Pray with me that we will love everybody. Pray with me that we will embrace those who might be a little bit different, whatever that might mean, even if it's just extrovert and introvert. Pray that we would embrace each other as a church and then pull in folks from this community around whether they look like us or not. And then let's do it. Let's trust God and do that and value life and trust him. Father, thank you for your love and your kindness and your goodness. Thank you that you are worthy of trust. We, we don't have to fear what you're going to be like tomorrow because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are faithful and good and loving and generous and kind. But you also keep up our tears in the bottle. And you've clearly showed us you will come and you will judge one day. We thank you that we don't have to fight our battles. We don't have to seek the vengeance because you will make all things right. Lord, help us to trust you today. Help us to really, truly trust you. And Lord, we pray that you would make us out of that a people who love other people, all other people. Lord, we do pray for the end of abortion. But Lord, we also pray for the end of sexual abuse. We pray for justice. We pray for justice between people of different skin colors. Lord, how sad 
that we as a church perpetuated this for 200 years. Forgive us, Lord, but help us to love others because you have first loved us. In Jesus, your name we pray.